welcome to the 3Ls Podcast, where I, your host, Rachel Ann Dine, licensed professional counselor, am here to share thoughtful commentary and strategies to help you with the big 3Ls of life, living, learning, and loving. Each episode, join in as a different psychological or current hot topic is explored with the hope of helping you live well, learn something that aids in personal growth or understanding, and love yourself or others in a way that honors you. Are you a fan of nutrient-dense wellness too? Let me tell you all about one of my favorite sources of adaptogens, Four Sigmatic, who uses a variety of mushrooms in everyday products. Reishi, lion's mane, and shaga all have been shown to help with thinking, immune system support, and gut support. I use these plant-based products every day in my smoothies and coffee, and you can too. Use code BEWELL for 10% off your purchase at us.foursigmatic.com. Again, that's BeWell at us.foursigmatic.com. Welcome back to the 3Ls podcast. I'm so glad that you're here today. I want to just kick this off by asking you a very quick question. If you wear makeup, if you buy skincare and beauty products, have you ever paused and wondered why? Why you choose to spend your hard-earned money on these products and on makeup and different lotions and potions that are anti-aging or pore-reducing or whatever the case may be. Now, I got to just tell you, I am not getting on to you if you do wear makeup or buy skincare products because I'm right there with you. I love my makeup. I often ask for recommendations and It's just been a really big part of my life and something that I've always enjoyed. So no way, shape, or form am I ever getting on to anybody for expressing yourself and how you want to present or appear. But for the sake of today, I want to take a deep dive and explore what is capitalism, how the beauty industry can sometimes use capitalistic tendencies or methods to play into a woman's vulnerability, to purchase different products, and talk a little bit about the history of makeup. Kind of a nice little hodgepodge, maybe to help get you thinking. Maybe this is this can be the quick pause and help you kind of reflect on, well, why do I wear makeup every day? You know, why do I spend so much money on different skincare products or whatever the case may be? Um, it wasn't until recently I participated in a, a specific makeup brands. They had kind of like a think lab. And so I met with several other amazing women and we kind of talked about the, all these very topics that I'm going to talk about today. And it really was very eye-opening. I've always, always been fascinated by gender and the construction of gender identities. Um, this dates all the way back to my college years, believe it or not, I minored in English. And I was flipping through some of my papers. Um, I, I wish I had more that I sh- saved, but back in that time, I never f- quite figured out how to work a you know a disk drive or anything like that. So they're all gone, but I do have a couple. And a lot of the topics centered around, you know, how gender has been constructed, uh, the use of media 
and gender construction. And then I found a little gem that I'm going to read out to you. This one just cracked me up. And I wrote it in 2009. Like I said, I did minor in English because I've always been just really a writer. I love to write. And this paper was um, a study of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. If you've read Canterbury Tales, I don't know what you think about it. I was fascinated. I loved it. And so the title of this paper, just to show you how the subject of beauty and the female ideal has always been just fascinating to me. But I titled this particular paper, Flaunt What You Got, The Ideal Female Beauty in the 14th Century as it Applies to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Flaunt What You Got. <laughs> I can't remember what I got on this paper, but um, makes me laugh. And so I asked the questions here, and I'm just going to read a quick snippet because I think it kind of kicks this episode off nicely, but it says, what constitutes a beautiful female in the 14th century is a very specific set of guidelines and requirements from a woman's hair color to the size of her mouth down to what her feet look like. There is a very much stereotyped and formal definition of the look that is defined as the ideal of middle English personal beauty. Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales has many instances where the ideal female beauty of the 14th century is demonstrated perfectly. And, you know, I go on to talk about how there are specific characters in The Knight's Tale, Miller's Tale, Wife of Bath's Tale, Merchant's Tale, Prioress's Tale, and then go on to say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But in the 14th century, there were most definitely certain characteristics that a woman needed to possess in order to be considered beautiful and attractive in the eyes of men. A thing that you will hear today, kind of a pattern, is that a lot of the ideal female beauty stereotype is very heteronormative. It's been very much um, developed through the male eye. And so even back in the 14th century, that's that was what was so fascinating to me, just reading through Canterbury Tales, to be able to pick through. There were so many instances, I'm not going to read you the entire paper, but within each specific tale that discussed the ideal female beauty. And so this there has been messaging around for decades upon decades, hundreds of years, in fact. And so... I'm just going over here to make sure. But yeah, that was the main point from reading out this little snippet from Flaunt What You Got um, <laughs> was just to demonstrate that across time, there have been so many different messages sent out to women. I'm going to read you one more quick message because this comes from a book called The Invisible Corset, Break Free from Beauty Culture and Embrace Your Radiant Self. It's by Lauren Geertsen. So The Invisible Corset, I highly recommend it to you if you're interested in exploring this topic further. This book was very eye-opening to me. Um, I will say that there, of course, there were some parts that I kind of, you know, was like, huh, because she makes a comment that if you, something along the lines, I'm paraphrasing, but if you wear makeup, that it's been reduced down to a form of creative expression. And you know, I think she was kind of talking a little bit negatively, like women were better than that. Wearing makeup isn't a part of being creative. And, you know, I guess I would kind of beg to differ and created a little bit of cognitive dissonance, if you will, because there's something really fun about playing with makeup colors and, um, 
just kind of creating a look, whatever the case may be. If you wear makeup, you probably understand what I'm saying. If if you don't, you may be rolling your eyes and agreeing with the author of the invisible corset. But either way, just wanted to present that piece to you. So in getting back to the many messages that we often receive, she describes the mantra beauty is pain is so ingrained in a women's collective psyche, we say it to ourselves automatically. As we take off the heels that pinched and bit into our toes, as we hoist up the control top leggings, or as we gaze longingly at our partner's plate of pancakes while we eat a zero-carb breakfast, we think beauty is pain. But is that a beautiful life? Where is the lushness and ease? Where is the self-reverence and gentleness? Where is the confident individuality? Where is the love? And that particular message, beauty is pain, how many times in your life have you heard that or even said it? Maybe after wearing a very uncomfortable outfit and then thinking to yourself, well, beauty is pain. Got to just go ahead and put on these heels that are a little uncomfortable, but I'll make it work. And that's the question that I want to examine today. Where, how did this come to be? How did it come to be that beauty has to be pain? And thankfully, I think we're moving more so into a culture that is trying to be more inclusive and celebratory of all different body types, all different faces, all different skin colors. But I'm not going to be so Pollyannic right now to say that that we're in a perfect place because I don't think that we are. Um, I think makeup industries have largely marketed to specific skin colors, races, socioeconomic classes, and only now is that starting to change. But um, I'll share some more information with you that I found. But it just, you know, it made me think. So I want to explore a little bit about what capitalism is because this is a very important piece of the current beauty industry, in my opinion. So capitalism is often thought of as an economic system in which private actors, so in this case it could be private beauty industry companies, own and control property in accord with their interest, not yours, with their interest, typically profit-driven, and demand and supply freely set prices in markets in a way that can serve the best interest of society. So this was taken from imf.org. And I want to point out that, you know, most of the essential main main features of capitalism is is the motive to make profit. And when we look at the beauty industry and their motives, it is a billion dollar industry where people are spending exorbitant amounts of money on beauty products, makeup and skincare, perfumes annually as a collective. And oftentimes though, these beauty brands once again, I'm not demonizing all of them because I've seen a lot of great changes, but many of these brands capitalize on the buyer's insecurity. So maybe the buyer has wrinkles around their forehead, bam, get this, you know, $60 little tube of anti-wrinkle cream and it'll it'll make your wrinkles go away and appear more youthful which to me is a whole other piece of this that there has been this really big push. It's almost like the Benjamin Button effect where the older that you get, the more that you're supposed to prevent aging. And most of the the general population 
is not going to run out and get the Botox or the fillers or the facelifts um, and are going to age in the way that a body ages. And yet sometimes it's almost as if we are sent the messages that you shouldn't be aging that an aged woman is a woman who, you know, she's on her way out, essentially. I hate to say that, but in many ways, that's kind of what I've seen. Even in marketing ploys, we rarely see women who are maybe over the age of 40 in these campaigns. Um, and it's because, you know, at that age, it's almost like after maybe 55, 65 plus, it doesn't seem like the beauty industry continues to market to that population. So the pillars of capitalism are often founded when people own tangible assets, when they have a high level of self-interest, which it causes them to act in pursuit of their own good without regard for sociopolitical pressure. So if we apply that to beauty industry standards and beauty industry goings-ons, the makeup industries may choose marketing messages that promote their own self-interest of making profit versus normalizing the process of aging. If the process of aging, and this is just an example, but if the process of aging, it could be, or, or just having bare skin, if those things became normalized, the beauty industry would not be in business. There would be no more need for Botox or the perfect foundation that matches your skin tone. It would it would be without. And so the self-interest component of capitalism is typically a pillar of it. You know, then there's then there's the piece of competition. So um, having competition between other other companies in the beauty industry specifically I'm talking about here. And so it's just very interesting how that whole whole concept of self-interest typically comes into play when we think about capitalism. And I think sometimes I found a really great article. It was actually in teenvogue.com. Standard Issues, White Supremacy, Capitalism, Influence, and Beauty. And in talking about marketing, one of the individuals who was quoted in this particular article basically summed up his own marketing approach. And he said, tell people they're disgusting, they don't smell good, and they're not attractive in a subtle way. In a subtle way, we'll do this. Because as the article states, psychological manipulation is the foundation upon which beauty marketing is built. This method isn't only ideal for selling products, it's also ideal for maintaining the patriarchy. So if you go and you see an ad, whether it's on social media, whether it's on TV, it's never going to come out straightforward and say, you're, you know, you're not attractive and you need our product. It's going to tell you something that is more subtle. You know, be more beautiful with this product. Feel younger. Feel more youthful with our product. And with so many messages like that being bombarded, it starts to become the norm. And with that being said, with all these messages going around, you may be wondering, how is it affecting 
people in their body image. And so I did want to share a couple quick statistics um, in terms of body image and self-esteem. And so this is from macmh.org. Teen social media body image presentation. I wanted to focus here on this teen portion. I think it's very applicable also to adults, but just also to illuminate the fact that in this day and age, you know, teens are really being affected very much so by these images, by um, this female societal ideal. And so self esteem. We all know that's how you think and feel about yourself, kind of as a total package, like the total whole being. Body image is how you think and feel about your body. And body image does tap into a bit, a a component of self-esteem. So now here is the nitty-gritty details. This, This to me was unsettling, but also unsurprising. So the stats on body image from Park Nicolette Melrose Center. So approximately 80% of U.S. women don't like how they look. 80%. Which, I don't know you hearing this, if you're surprised or um, taken aback, I would love to hear your thoughts. As always, please don't hesitate to reach out if you have noticed that in your social circle, you know, Women are complaining about their bodies, faces, um, skin, whatever the case could be. But 80% of U.S. women don't like how they look. 34% of men are dissatisfied with their bodies. Over 50% of Americans aren't happy with their current weight. 70% of normal weighted women want to be thinner. So we know that body image is a big problem in our current society, and it can definitely lead to depression, social anxiety, eating disorders, feeling less than, feeling like you're not enough just as you are in your own beautiful skin or body. So moving on to the adolescent stats, this one also was pretty troubling. So over 80% of 10-year-olds are afraid of being fat. 10 years old. What is that? Like a third or fourth grade? Fifth grade maybe? Fourth grade. And 53% of 13-year-old American girls are unhappy with their bodies. 53%. And then this number grows to 78% by the time girls reach 17 years of age. So then by middle school, 40 to 70% of girls are dissatisfied with two or more parts of their body. Now, I've dug a lot into the research when it comes to this, and I have a couple more stats I'll share with you. And, you know, of course, I am not demonizing social media, but one of those contributing factors to this was... Well, there were a couple. So whether or not a person reads um, fashion magazines, this can contribute to having this negative image, negative view of self, um, which back when I was in high school and then even in college, of course, social media wasn't really big on the scene. So that's pretty much all that we had were the fashion magazines or um, – you know, like Vogue or Us Weekly or I don't know, whatever it was, people. Um, So that contributes to it, seeing those images and they're airbrushed. But then also we know now social media. And 
typically when with social media coming on the scene, no longer is each kind of region stuck within their region. So, you know, I grew up in Florida. Let's just say I didn't have social media. So then I'm going to only see the standard of my specific area. I'm not because you you didn't have access to someone who lived in Europe, for example. But with social media, the the ability to compare yourself to someone who lives in a completely different region is so ever present, and it, it it does contribute to younger people getting in right from the get go, whether it's on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook and seeing these other people their same age who don't look like them. And why would they? They don't live in the same region, but it's being normalized that this is how they should look. Um, or at least, or it, it's exposing them to the way that other people look um, and causing them to feel like they don't look how they should. Okay. So a couple more stats, around 30% of 10 to 14-year-olds are actively dieting, and 46% of 9 to 11-year-olds are sometimes or very often on diets. I can't, I mean, 46% of 9 to 11-year-olds, to me, it really, it shouldn't, you know, blow me away as much as it does, but to be 9 years old... I mean, I think back to when I was nine, you, you feel so little at that age. You know, you're just a little girl. Um, and to feel like, oh, okay, I'm already on a diet. I'm I'm restricting this food because it's not good for me. Um, but then the interesting piece that follows here is that 80, 82% of their families of the 9, 10, 11-year-olds who are dieting 82% of their families are sometimes or very often on diets. So the diet culture, the um, how families viewed food, how families view food definitely impacts a, a child's view of food. And if you're listening, even thinking back to how your family viewed food and body appearance, because a lot of times this is where these messages also greatly start. Um, I've talked about this before, but even, even if your family praised a different body type, um, I think I talked about this on a different podcast um, somewhere else, but essentially if if you have more of an athletic build and, you know, you heard your mom repeatedly say, well, we just weren't blessed with being curvy, you know, we're just cursed like that. It's just not good. Um, we don't have those curvy bodies. It would be nice. Then you start to become predisposed to think that because you have more of an athletic build, there's something wrong with you. So those, those messaging that we receive is vital is so vital. And I bring this up because if you did receive messaging that was less than favorable or just flat out negative, it can be self-corrected. It just takes time, effort, and energy. Um, okay. So the last couple of things that I want to share. So then over 50% of teen girls and 30% of teen boys use unhealthy weight control behaviors such as skipping meals, fasting, smoking, cigarettes, vomiting, and or taking laxatives. And um, so to me, again, I, I wanted to share those stats. I think it's pretty telling. And kind of this whole body image development comes from 
what societal beauty ideals are, and then it goes into the socio-cultural channels. So that could be media, family, peers, which I was already tapping into where we can get those messages from. After a period of time of constantly seeing this influx of sociocultural channels come into play, constantly viewing media, constantly hearing from family, different negative messages, getting into a peer group who has negative messages or is so hyper-focused on what they're consuming can cause a person to start to internalize these messages, which then can always lead to body dissatisfaction or... On the flip side, sometimes body satisfaction. Um, okay, so I found that to be interesting. I wanna, I wanna just share with you too. When I keep referring to the feminine beauty ideal, there is a specific definition that I want to read to you. This is taken from encyclopedia.fandom.com. Feminine ideal beauty. I thought this was a really great definition. So the feminine beauty ideal is the socially constructed notion that physical attractiveness is one of women's most important assets and something all women should strive to achieve and maintain. Feminine beauty ideals have always been prevalent in every culture, in every society, in every time period. Think about what I just read you, the little flaunt what you got. Um, And that was just going through the 14th century Chaucer's tales to obtain what their ideal feminine beauty was at that time. Um, So beauty ideals always prevalent, every culture, society, time period. Women conform to beauty norms to fit into the crowd and to simultaneously show themselves off as being desirable. The feminine beauty ideals are rooted in heteronormative beliefs yet they still heavily influence women of all sexual orientation. Okay, so the these ideals are exposed to children from an early age through fairy tales and Disney princesses. Once again, not demonizing Disney here, but more so the fairy tale princess kind of motif that I'm sure If, you know, growing up, you watched movies, whether it was Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, and this damsel in distress was saved by the prince. You know, it just starts at that very early age to imprint almost this ideal of what it's like to be feminine and also what it's like to be the masculine person. Okay, the feminine beauty ideal has become more ingrained and cohesive in recent decades because of the expansion of technology and the relevance of mass media. So research has shown that the pressure to conform to a certain definition of beautiful has had drastic psychological effects. And that is what I was talking about earlier with body image being linked to if it's a neg- if you have a negative body image being linked to depression, low self-esteem, anxiety, low self-confidence and eating disorders. Okay, so we're going to tap into a couple other quick things. Um so just really quickly when it comes to mass media because this is also where we you know, we see a lot of images, we get a lot of these advertisements, and a lot of it does come from these mass media images. So what does this really mean? So 
Before mass media even existed, our ideas of beauty were limited to our own communities. So again, I'm going back to kind of what I was just speaking on. If I grew up in Florida, I don't have social media. I just have these little fashion magazines that I know it's it's a fashion magazine. They feel super far removed from my current community. You know, I, I know that it's a model. I know that it's a movie star. Um, it, it, you know, I'm sh- back then, of course, development of a negative body image could be present, but it wasn't as in your face as it is now where everyone has a smartphone. You go in and you see all these different images of people all around. And so as mass media develops, and again, taken from fandom.com, um, Encyclopedia, Feminine Beauty Ideal, as mass media develops, the way people see feminine beauty ideals change, as does how females view themselves and one another. Each day, girls are exposed to images of beautiful models and advertisements about beauty and fashion. So... um, The Encyclopedia of Gender in the media states that the post-production techniques of airbrushing and computer-generated modifications perfect the beauty myth by removing any remaining blemishes or imperfections visible to the eye, therefore capitalizing on someone's insecurities. Because if you're an adolescent girl or you're a 30-year-old woman and you're still getting acne, which is totally common, we know hormones are a complete part of our life at every life cycle development stage, but nobody in any ads, no one is talking about hormonal acne in your 30s. Um, yeah, it's definitely going to cause you to kind of take a step back and think, well, what is wrong with me? Why I must need this product, you know, some acne solution product to make this go away because I'm not normal when in actuality, acne is normal. And I just bring up that example because it's something that I recently noticed in social media. I saw a great a really, really awesome, I can't remember the name of it now, but it was a makeup company, skincare company. And they were normalizing acne as a, as a you know, um, I, I don't want to say older adult, but as like a middle, starting to be middle-aged adult, 30 plus, still getting acne. So I thought that that was a really great move on their part. So the last thing that I'll really share about the media and creating kind of these expectations for women is that oftentimes there's this ideal of feminine beauty that is almost impossible to achieve for the average woman. And the media starts to really create almost this dissatisfaction with one's body, which can definitely lead to the weight control behaviors, restrictive eating, negative relationship with your body. Um, it, it It's kind of very prevalent in terms of research finding that magazine advertisements promoting dieting and thinness are far more prevalent in women's magazines than even in men's magazines. And that female television characters are far more likely to be thin than male characters. Think about the last time that you went to the grocery store and looked at, you know, all of the different magazines that were on display. I can't tell you how many times I I see you know, I went on this 
grapefruit diet and lost 25 pounds and now I feel amazing or, you know, 10 ways to get uh, back in shape or whatever the case could be. There just is such this promotion towards body image and what your body is supposed to look like when, if we really break this down, we know that every body is different and every body has a certain even weight capacity that it can meet. The way that your, you know, background is, your family of origin, your ancestors even, and their appearance, it all goes into a person's body size. Yet this ideal of thinness has really been celebrated over the course, you know, pretty much just through media and advertising and just over years and years and years. And so again, we're starting to get away from that. But this also goes into what the beauty industry can sometimes capitalize on. Only very recently have I even started to see women who are of average size. You know, they're not necessarily the stick thin. You know, I think of Calvin Klein model days where they were just so, so thin, almost um, looked emaciated. Only recently have I started to see models that look like me, essentially. And it's a good thing. So I think that we're starting to make these healthy changes. But there is still a bit of a ways to go if um, I, I do say so myself. And so anyway, so this is really how that feminine beauty ideal starts to get constructed. The last thing that I'll say, I'm just going to tap into this really briefly, um, is just that whole fairy tale motif. It's only also been recently, I, and this is tangential side note here, but I remember I read an article probably maybe 10 years ago, and it was all about how there were new t-shirts coming out for girls saying, you know, you can do this or girls rule the world or something like that. And people were just celebrating it in surprise because it had never been done. Typically, it was like little boys t-shirts had boys rule or, you know, just those little cute kidsy type phrases. I, I wish I had better examples for you right now. Um, and I, I remembered even back then thinking, well, this is kind of how it should have always been. Um, but thankfully, we're getting to a place where little girls are not being pegged into you have to, like the 1950s thinking of staying at home being a housewife, that's your eternal job on this earth. You know, you're able to do what you want to do and foster a sense of interest and be independent. And I'm so here for it. Um, so, but that often comes from, you know, those ideals that came forth in fairy tales. And way back when, I also love the study of fairy tales. I did a lot of um, deep diving into this when I was in college just to kind of talk about the gender identity construction. But the Brothers Grimm, they were the ones who originally wrote Snow White and Cinderella. And believe it or not, the Brothers Grimm fairy tales – they were actually a lot more morbid than how Disney kind of spent, spun it. And they had a lot more like, like I guess if the ugly stepsister's foot in Cinderella didn't fit into the glass slipper, if I'm rem remembering this correctly, she actually like cut her toe off. And that, of course, was not seen in the modern remake of it. But I just <laughs> always laughed at that. I thought it was kind of interesting. But they really started presenting this tale of defining beauty 
as a very, very specific physical motif. And that really spun the tale that in order to be good, pretty, and wanted, the female protagonist or female character in their tales, they had to have those physical characteristics as well. And so the fairy tales by Brothers Grimm, they frequently described as uh the, the nemesis in the tales were frequently described as ugly and unattractive, which related those characters to being ugly and evil. So to me, taking that deep dive, kind of that psychoanalysis of how even in the 1800s writing these children's tales, good, being good, was associated with a certain physical appearance. And... It's interesting. I mean, so we know that Disney World, Disney uh, ended up kind of remaking some of these classics and very much went along with the the pretty princess motif and the handsome prince and the prince has to save the princess and thankfully have gotten away from that because now we're seeing little girls put into places where they're the heroine. They're the one who are saving the day. But it's interesting just for my age range, you know, I'm in the 30 plus, 30 to 40 age range where there wasn't, you know, Moana or characters like that when I was little. And so it's nice to see this starting to come about, but it also goes to show even these little themes, these ideas, and some of our favorite childhood stories, if you really take a look at it, it is interesting how being feminine is portrayed. And that's my quick quick little deep dive into how the feminine ideal has kind of rose across time and then how we're starting to deconstruct it and make it so that you can still you can be feminine but still very strong just because you wear makeup doesn't mean that you're just a pretty princess if you will you can be the owner of a company you can whatever um or being non-feminine doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong and i don't even know if that's a great term non-feminine but not kind of just not um wearing makeup or whatever the case could be there's room for all of us here so how did makeup come to be? This is the next kind of piece of this episode that I really want to dive into because it is interesting. I've got some fun facts for you. It's been around for quite quite the time. You may be surprised to know that the history of makeup and the development and use of such spans across the ages. I'm talking about all the way back to ancient Egypt, 10,000 BCE is when cosmetics were found to be an integral part of Egyptian hygiene and health. I found a great, fun little timeline read, cosmeticsinfo.org, ancient history cosmetics, that really laid out, I'm not going to go through every single one of them, but just pointed out to the fact that even since 10,000 BCE in ancient Egypt is when makeup was found to be at play. We know that from that time, it really continued through. In 1200 is when perfumes were first imported to Europe from the Middle East as a result of the Crusades. We know in 1300 and the Elizabethan England, they dyed red hair, dyed red hair came into fashion. 
in society, women wore egg whites over their faces. And some people started believing, though, that cosmetics blocked proper circulation and posed a health threat. We know that later on, women were using lead-based makeup (laughs) in the Middle Ages, which contributed to death and then skin disease and skin infection. So when they say beauty is pain, yeah, beauty was really pain back then. So in the 14 and 1500s is when Italy and France really started emerging as the main centers of cosmetics manufacturing in Europe. Um, And only the aristocrats had access, which if I'm honest, there are still certain brands out there today that I think bank on the fact that they are a luxury brand. It's unattainable for everybody else and they capitalize on that. They kind of market it as it's the exclusive. I was watching a great show on Netflix. It's like these little tiny four four or five mini documentaries and one was on, it's called Broken. I think that's the name of it. And one of them was on the makeup industry and how there is just this influx of counterfeit makeup coming coming into the U.S. and really all over. And so they were talking about how makeup brands and the beauty industry runs these sales that tap into scarcity mindset for people and the supply and demand plays a role in it. So they'll have like a flash sale where it'll be a limited time product that's only available for 24 hours and it's meant to drive up demand. You know, so to me, it's very psychological in nature. They're playing on the fact that it's not going to be around forever. So you either get it now or it goes away. Um, So, you know, psychology of marketing right there for me. But it also, you know, okay, so going back, you know, even creating that luxury brand status, you're not worthy of this or you don't have enough money to be able to afford it. It also kind of contributes to, um, you know, I want to say like inequality in terms of not everybody being able to afford certain brands, which we know is the case. But I do think it also turns into a bit of a capitalistic marketing ploy. All right, so if we move on, we know, okay, um, in 1900, in Edwardian society, pressure increases on middle-aged women to appear youthful while acting as hostesses. As a result, cosmetics use increases but is not yet completely popularized. Beauty salons do start rising in popularity, though patronage of such salons is not yet widely accepted. Because many women do not wish to publicly admit they have assistance achieving their youthful appearances. Now, in, I'm going to fast forward, in 1907, a young French chemist, Eugene Schuller, invents modern synthetic hair dye, which he calls Oriel. In 1909, Schuller names his company Society Francois de Tinctures Inoffensives pour Chevaux. I don't speak French, but hopefully that came out correctly, which today has become L'Oreal. So it was established 1907 around that time. But in the 20s, 1920s is when, for the first time, the cosmetic use exploded onto the scene. Think heavily lined, dark eyes, red lipstick, red nail polish, and being suntanned which was first noted as a fashion statement by Coco Chanel. 
Um, and from there, makeup was born, <laughs> essentially. I mean, it's always been around, but I think the 1920s is when in the U.S., that's when it became the thing. That's when it became um, part of mainstream modern day culture. Women no longer felt ashamed for the most part on wearing it. And um, it, it just really came about. So then even, even around World, World War II and aftermath in 1940, leg makeup was developed in response to a shortage of stockings during World War II, which also goes kind of back to the male gaze and what what was driven by potentially what men found attractive, you know, like wearing stockings or having to put makeup on your legs to feel confident to go out. Um, so the last thing I want to share about this is um, in 1989, Look Good, Feel Better is founded by Look Good, Feel Better Foundation a charitable organization established to help hundreds of thousands of women with cancer by approving their self-esteem and confidence through lessons on skin and nail care, cosmetics, and accessories to address the appearance-related side effects of treatment. So that was in 1989. 1990, animal testing for cosmetics continues to be a hot topic in the beauty industry driven by consumer preferences. In June of 1989, Avon became the first major cosmetics company in the world to announce permanent end to animal testing of its products, including testing done in outside laboratories. So this is something I want to point out. Whatever your stance is on makeup products and testing, I encourage you to explore what you're comfortable with. Um, in this modern day and age, personally, I don't feel like testing should still be done on animals. I mean, I thought we are past that. And yet there is still some ambiguity with certain makeup brands. Even when I had was doing some research, if it doesn't say cruelty-free, then there's the potential that they're still testing on animals in different countries. And I just feel at this point in time, we've got to let that go. Um, so whether you want vegan products or the cruelty-free products, they are all out there, and I love it. Um, I think that it just speaks to where we are currently and how we've come a much further way. So the last thing I'll share is that finally, and this isn't necessarily about makeup, so to speak, but with the rise of makeup, with the rise of all these products, there had to be continual measures put in place to minimize risk and potential environmental impacts. And so the cosmetics industry enacted the Microbead Free Waters Act, which prohibited the manufacture and sale of rinse-off cosmetics that contain intentionally added plastic microbeads. So environmentally... Um, environmental shifts started happening. And then the most recent here, this is the last one I'll read, is 2018. Um, faced with legislation, legislation in California to ban animal testing that would have prevented U.S. companies from access to certain international markets, PCPC builds an integrated, multifaceted strategy to successfully modify and enact the California Cruelty-Free Cosmetics Act. So with each step of the way, there's been societal changes in terms of 
In terms of the development of makeup and even the effect that it has on the environment, but it, it's kind of a whole lot to think about if you really break it down. You know, it's buying a product typically shrouded in plastic, and I know I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but then it's also partly this feminine beauty ideal that gets out there where the market is telling us how to look and what we need to wear. Um, and so I think by making this episode, I, I really, I guess I just am hoping to maybe encourage new thoughts about why do I buy it? Is it cruelty-free? Am I trying to reduce my use of use of plastics? Whatever the case could be. Um, and then just finally to start kind of wrapping it up just a little bit. In the 1960s and 70s, this is where the feminist really, the feminist movement really started urging their fellow women to start to discard anything that men might use to objectify them. And this is taken from people.howstuffworks.com about makeup. And by putting, they say, by putting on makeup and dressing in a certain way, these feminists argued women were only submitting to a patriarchal culture that sought to exploit them for their beauty, not their brain. Thankfully, I think that this mindset has changed in that if you choose to wear makeup, at least this is my belief, if you choose to wear makeup, hopefully you're just doing it for you. You're not doing it for anybody else. You're you're comfortable in your skin with or without it. You appreciate your body. You appreciate the way you look. Um, but maybe putting on makeup, whether it's a five-minute routine or you like playing with colors, whatever the case can be, it's something that you do just to feel good for yourself. It's time by yourself that you get to spend, whatever the case may be. Um, it's when wearing makeup is for the benefit or, of someone else or because the anxiety is so high or the insecurity is so high if you don't have it on. That's when, to me, it starts to become problematic. Um, so I, I just thought that this was interesting to read on how makeup works in terms of just wanting to get rid of it all um, because it was really contributing to or submitting to a patriarchal culture. So some women may have acknowledged uh, that they wore lipstick to attract a man, but they also wore it for themselves. And so this was kind of the other side of the, the coin during the 60s and 70s where women were standing up and saying, no, I'm not wearing it for any other reason Then I just like it. It's just, it's something that I enjoy. And even today, feminists are still divided on the makeup issue. So the issue of choice is important, So, which means that a woman should be able to decide to wear makeup for herself without anyone else assuming, you know, that she's she's doing it for any other reason. Um, but on the other hand, men and women are concerned about the messages implied within cosmetics advertising and television shows. And this is where I, I really... I have talked about this a lot in the in the episode today, but this is where um, certain groups of people are starting to really believe that they're being sold on the idea that they're imperfect and they need to be fixed, which can only happen if they continue to buy certain products, which this is pushed by the capitalistic kind of beauty industry out there. 
And um, so it's just, it's interesting to see how in the 60s and 70s, you know, people started pushing back. And I think that's where we first started seeing, no, we don't need to wear anything on our faces. We don't need to reduce wrinkles around our eyes because that's part of aging. That's part of who we are. And I think it's it's become a lot more prevalent where the power of choice is out there and being able to pick and choose how you want to present and what how you want to treat your body and what you want to put on your face or not put on your face. Um, but yeah, so if you do wear makeup, just understanding the reasoning behind it. And the last thing I'll lead you to, because this is not a whole demonizing of the makeup industry by any means. But I did find a good article from Refinery29.com, Wearing Makeup at Home, Coronavirus Quarantine. And they talk about how the idea that women put on makeup for the consumption of others, particularly men, has been retired a long time ago. You know, I, I think maybe in the 50s, women would put that makeup on with the intention of looking presentable for the male counterpart. And then I think about, you know, we started seeing these strong female figures. I think about Rosie the Riveter and, you know, she was kind of this um, really moxie kind of woman who was not doing anything necessarily for a man's attention. And so, okay, so I just bring that up because... I think that this notion has retired that if you're wearing makeup, you're wearing it to get you a man or a woman, whatever the case could be. So in this article there, they interviewed a woman on during COVID, why or why not did she wear her makeup or even if she was just at home? And she described it as meditative, almost makeup application experience where just the very act of taking care of herself and practicing what she felt was a sense of self-care helped her to feel a little bit normal throughout a time where everything was just in flux. And so for some, the ritual of putting on makeup can be a starting point to feeling almost like you're, you're caring for you. And not to say that if you don't wear makeup, you're still not caring for yourself. But if you do, then this can also feed that notion that, you know, it's the act of just self-care. Um, and, you know, when we have these kind of calm moments of applying that face lotion or applying the makeup, when the at- intention is being directed into one area and when you're using your hands, there can be something mindful about that moment where you're in the moment. You know, if you wear mascara, think about when you're applying the mascara, typically you're going to be immersed in that moment of application because it's real easy to just whoop, you know, and it gets somewhere else on your eye. So um, I, I just thought I wanted to read that little tidbit bit about how it's interesting, the different motivations for putting on makeup. And just remember If you feel that you always have to have a face on in order to be presentable or to be deemed as even feminine, this is not the case. If you've been listening, I want you to know the big role that media plays, kind of the beauty capitalistic industry that's out there that 
tends to capitalize on women's insecurities, which many people can have fear surrounding getting older, not looking as youthful, um, developing health issues, and just recognizing, am I buying this product because I'm going to do it, it's going to make me feel good, or am I doing it based upon fear? I don't want to get older, or I have to have this eyeshadow to cover up this part of my face that I don't like, my you know my eyelids, whatever, um, and examining the choices behind how you're spending your money and what that drive is. It'll always be fascinating to me, the different feminine beauty ideals that have been around since the dawn of time is also something fascinating. Thankfully, here we are in the 2020s, it's starting to catch up a little bit. All bodies are starting to be appreciated. All faces are starting to be appreciated. I'm always happy to see companies that are using real women to represent their brand because it normalizes the fact that we aren't all 5'10 in walking around. There are so many different shapes and sizes and nobody is less than the other person. So I hope you've enjoyed the episode today. I hope that whatever you decide to do with this information, that it benefits you in some certain way. As always, I'm so glad that you tuned in. Let me know if you have any thoughts. Always feel free to share, whether it's on my Instagram or shoot me an email. If you've ever been caught up in kind of the pressure to conform to the societal ideal that there is, or if you've taken a break from social media and noticed that you feel differently or more positive, or just any common observations. I'm always happy to hear. And you guys take care. Hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks for tuning in to the three L's today. Catch up with me on Instagram at Rachel and Dine Counseling, where you can contact me about a topic or follow up on today's episode. As always, the information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and not intended to treat or diagnose. Reach out to your own medical or legal provider for assistance and individualized care. Here's to the three L's and being empowered to make decisions that work for you in your life.